Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. Randy Maneri, the Flames franchise first ever All-Star, is our guest on episode 31 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. A steady defenseman who could carry the puck, Randy played 592 NHL games with the Atlanta Flames, Detroit Red Wings, and LA Kings. He was named the Flames representative in a 1973 NHL All-Star game in New York, and later in his career was twice voted to be the top defenseman on the LA Kings. In this interview, Randy recalls the early days of hockey in the Deep South. Colorful personalities like Pat Quinn, Boom Boom Jeffreyon, and Tom Lysiak, the trade to LA, life on the West Coast, and the life challenges he faced upon retirement. Just a reminder to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating on iTunes because this helps more people find these old-time hockey interviews. You can reach us at prohockeyalumni at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And you can find us at Pro Hockey Alumni anywhere on the web. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Randy Maneri. We're back on the show with the very first Flames franchise all-star and a uh, long-time defenseman for the Flames and the Los Angeles Kings, Randy Maneri. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Uh, Randy, going back to uh, juniors, you begin your career with Hamilton in the UOHA. Now, that was a, a Red Wings back the way things were arranged back then. The rain, rain, I'm assuming the Red Wings owned it, and you had to sign a C form uh, back in those days. But uh, can you uh, recall how you uh, initially were approached by the Detroit organization and ended up playing in Hamilton? Yes, that was a, it was certainly a different system, and you're right. There was the C form, which when you signed that C form, you belonged to that NHL club forever. And But I remember my experience with Detroit really well because I got a letter in the mail uh, telling me that Detroit had drafted me, and quite different than what we see today mm-hmm. on TV and everything. Um, and I thought, well, that's really interesting because I'd only been to like two NHL games in my life. Uh, never been to a junior A game and so I didn't know what the next step would be but a couple weeks later Jimmy Skinner called me and Jimmy was the head scout for the Red Wings at the time right you know he called congratulated said you know blah 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 and uh, by the way we want you to go to Hamilton to play uh, junior A and I don't know what overtook me that that day (laughs) but uh, I said Jimmy I really appreciate the opportunity but I don't think I'm going to be able to go and he said, well, why is that? And I said, well, you know, my parents really want me to be, you know, the first member of the family, not only to get out of high school, but to go to college and to, and to graduate. And I said, and I just don't see how playing for you in Hamilton is going to help me get to college. That's so pretty, Jimmy, uh, by the way, that's pretty, uh, that, that, <laughs> not too many people do that. I think you must have been, what, 16, 17 years old at the time. Yeah, I just turned 17, and I don't know what overtook me as well, but... Uh, <laughs> I remember Jimmy said a few rather use a few hockey phrases and hung up, and I thought, well, whatever that opportunity was, it's gone. And uh, a couple weeks passed, and the phone rang, and it was uh, Jimmy calling back. And he said, Randy, he said, this is what we're going to do. He said, uh, you want to go to college, right? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, so we want you to go to Hamilton. There's a really good university there, McMaster University. And I said, yeah, that's one of the top schools in Canada. And Jimmy said, well we will pay uh, for the rest of your high school. We'll pay for all of your college. But here's the deal. You have to go to Hamilton. You have to make the team. And you can never pass. You can never fail an exam of any kind while you're there. Wow. You will not miss, you will not miss any practices. You will not miss any games. You'll always be available when the team needs you. And if you can do that, then, uh, then we'd like for you to come to Hamilton. I said, Jimmy, I don't know whether I can get into McMaster or not. They really require high grades. And he said, that's not my problem. This is what you asked for, and are you interested? And I said, I am. And so I went to Hamilton, and 
It wasn't until I got to Hamilton that I realized that in the previous 25-year history of the league that only one player had successfully gone, so I'm told, had successfully gone to college and played junior A, and that was Pitt Martin. Wow. Uh, but the year that I went to Hamilton, there were three of us. There was uh, Rick Smith, uh, who eventually uh, went to uh, uh, Golden Seals and played in Boston for quite a while. Yeah, I just was uh, – funny you mentioned Rick. I was just with uh, Rick uh, a week ago. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, he came up he came up for the uh, Ace Bailey Foundation uh, dinner. Oh, and uh, okay. so we uh, had an opportunity to talk a little bit about the, the SEALs and all that. So just coincidental, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. And, and Lee Carpenter, another uh, – uh, the real student amongst the three of us who uh, I don't believe played uh, pro hockey, maybe a little, I'm not sure. But um, anyway, there the three of us, and that made it a little bit easier because the three of us, even though you know the demands were the same, there was three of us to kind of pull together to you know get through school and to encourage each other because it was a difficult thing to do, but we all made it. What was the experience like in Hamilton, um, the – league in the OHA at that time when you were playing against, let's say, the Toronto Marlboros, which would have a sellout crowd, crowd at Maple Leaf Gardens. It was big-time junior hockey, to be sure. What was that experience like? It was terrific. It was quite a change from my little hometown to Leamington, where we would, you know, your parents and maybe 50 other people or so, or if you get into the playoffs, you might have a few hundred people come out. So like you just said, you go to play the Marlies in Toronto at the Garden, then it will be sold out. And you go to Montreal to play the Junior Canadians and, you know, another full crowd. And it was that way around the entire league because there were just, you know, six teams in the league at the time. And so in the NHL, so all these, all the kids playing in the OHA, you know, they were, most of them or quite a few of them were, were destined to play in the National Hockey League. So for a couple dollars, people, people could come see the, you know, future stars or players of the NHL, you know, playing at a much younger age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you go through those rosters and uh, up and down every roster, including Hamilton's, you see or at least 10 pros and uh, a foretelling of what hockey would be in the uh, 60s and 70s in many ways. It was. It was really exciting. Um, it was quite a change, like I say, from, you know, from minor league hockey in a small town. Uh, but at the same time, it was a huge opportunity, uh, a real growing, personal growing experience because you were you know, living in a boarding house and uh, traveling a lot, a lot of bus travel. Um, it was just uh, a real opportunity, I guess, for me uh, to kind of mature a little bit more and to uh, become disciplined, which would help me you know, throughout the rest of my life. And I credit a lot of that to the early years of, uh, of playing and trying to go to school and New City, all those things all at once really brought the best out of me, I believe. When did you go to your first Detroit Red Wings training camp, and what was that experience like? So that would have been in uh, 67, 68, um, before the beginning of my second year in Hamilton. And, um, you know, I was, at at that time, you know, you couldn't turn pro until 20. Uh, Bobby Orr Bobby Orr had maybe had just broken that. Uh, they maybe changed that rule for Bobby. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten. But at the time, for most of the most of the rest of us, it was 20 before you could turn pro. So it was a real honor to be able to go and a real eye opener once again for me to see just how you know much bigger and faster uh, the guys were and how much quicker the game was. But it was really good for me to be able to have that experience of a couple of weeks, and then come back, you know, to Hamilton and uh, go for the second year. It had to be incredible, uh, though, to, to go to that camp and see the likes of Gordy Howe and Alex Del Vecchio, among others. It really was, and they—I mean—they were—and they were very kind, you know, very generous uh, in their time. They, you know, nobody went out of their way to make me look bad. <laughs> they all made me feel, you know, as welcome as they could. But probably remember back then as well. There were well over a hundred, you know, guys that were at training camp at that time because uh. each NHL team had four or five you know, uh, teams, including the NHL team, had rosters to fill, so they always brought a lot of guys into camp. Uh, But uh, it was just good to be there with that bigger group, uh, for sure. Back, you mentioned Bob Yor, who was a rarity because uh, he had played at 18 at the NHL level, but particularly among defensemen. Back then, defensemen were rarely rushed into the fray of the NHL and took some seasoning, and... Uh, with that in mind, you uh, joined the Fort Worth Texans, 
and uh, you play there for three, almost three full seasons. What was the experience like of playing in Fort Worth, Texas, back in the 1960s and, and early 70s? Well, it was it was interesting. I had a lot of fun. Met a lot of great people. Uh, Texas was the people in Texas were and still are, you know, very friendly, very welcoming people. Um, the interesting thing, or maybe, and also the biggest challenge in that league was that all the majority of the arenas were actually the ice arenas were actually ice services were set down in the middle of uh, rodeo uh, arenas. Oh, really? And so, and so you would dress in the um, in the rooms that might be where the cattle or the horses came through, you know, during the rodeos. <laughs> And you walk down, so you'd walk into the first set of, of uh, boards around there, which is where the rodeo size, mm-hmm. to, to get to your own, to get to the ice uh, and the ice high and the ice boards. So that was uh, it was kind of unique. I remember going to Kansas City at the time, which was in the uh, Central League as well, and uh, we played uh, the American Royal, and the dressing rooms there were in like a gondola type of situation up over the stockyards. Oh. Where that where they kept the cattle, so it was, and the league was really spread out. I mean, it was Fort Worth, Dallas, and then there was uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma City, Amarillo, Omaha, Kansas City. Uh, one year, Iowa had a team in the league, uh, and we did almost everything by bus, and so it was a lot of time spent, you know, bussing around. But that's what the minor leagues are all about. How badly do you want it? It's funny you say that. I was going to ask you that same question because you've got. Uh, college education under your belt you have other options and you're playing in a reused rodeo arena or whatever you want to say it's 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 a lot of bus travel so you've got as you said you've got to really want it at that point uh you've you're focused on on making the national hockey league right well i knew that uh well, i shouldn't say i knew that but i really felt like after my after the second time I went to the Red Wing camp, just before my final season in Hamilton, I really believed that I could play at that level. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to, I gave myself three years, because I knew I wouldn't get an opportunity to go directly to Detroit. So I gave myself three years. And fortunately for me, after the third year, um, the Atlanta Atlanta Flames were brought into the league. And uh, Cliff Fletcher and uh, Boomer uh, seemed to like the, my, my, my style and mm-hmm. my way of play. And so they uh, brought me into Atlanta, and that was a huge opportunity for me. Was there any time during that three-year stint, however, where you maybe just questioned yourself and got down and just you know, wondered if it was worth it? Yes, there was. The third year, my final year in Fort Worth, because uh, someone in Detroit made a determination that <clears throat> maybe I wasn't as good a defenseman as I could be a forward. And so they moved me up to the right wing and... Um, really wasn't very comfortable up there. I scored quite a few goals, but and I even got called up to Detroit to play right wing uh, one night uh, uh, in Chicago. Gordy, Gordy was hurt, and so I played with Alex and I want to say Pappen, but I don't remember for sure. We, but we played against, uh, not Pappen, uh, forgot who was on the other wing, uh, but then uh, we played against you know, Makita Hall and, and Pappen all night long. Mm-hmm. That was pretty. That was pretty interesting, but it was a little discouraging too because that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the NHL, but I wanted to be there on defense. Was that game in Chicago? It was. So that had to be, regardless of the fact that you're playing out of position, uh, putting on that uh, Red Wings jersey and skating out on the ice with Gordie Howe, Alex Dovecchio, and the Detroit Red Wings in Chicago with a packed house against some of the all-time greats of hockey. It had to be kind of surreal for you as you're. Uh, looking around there, at least it would be for me, uh, seeing all those those greats, and here you are. Yeah, it was. It was a great night. It was a great time. But like I said, when I went back down to Fort Worth, it was like, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I was uh, I was excited to be there, but I also knew the right wing wasn't going to be the way that earned me uh, into the, an opportunity to play in the National Hockey League. Now, how did you find out you were an Atlanta Flame? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't really remember. Uh, one of the advantages and disadvantages of living in the South is that a lot of the things that happened along the way, people haven't asked me about for years. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure I got a phone call, but I don't remember. I'm sh- I just don't remember who it was who it was from. Hockey in the Deep South, you've got Boom Boom Jeffrey on coaching, and it's an interesting group of defensemen who join you. And I, I th- it felt like you fit 
your your talent level of being able to move the puck and step into the offense was perfect for a team where you had guys like Pat Quinn, Noel Price, uh, Arndy Brown, Ron Harris, Noel Picard, some real grizzled veterans who were very defensive-oriented and physical. Um and yourself, uh, I thought it was, it was it was a great opportunity for you. What was it like, uh, I guess, with those guys like Pat Quinn and did, were they uh, mentoring? And uh, I assume they were, and you learned must have learned a lot from playing with with a group like that. Um, well, you know, we went to the first training camp. Uh, I think it was in Drummondville, and uh, they put Pat and I together right away. And we were. Pat, neither Pat nor I were really sure that we were going to make the team. We seemed to be, you know, third or fourth set of defensemen. But, mm-hmm. you know, our styles really complemented one another because Pat was a grinder, and uh, he could really take care of that side of it, and I could, I could move with the puck. And so between the two of us, we developed a style to where, you know, we played off of each other's strengths, and uh, quite quickly, I think, you know, Pat and I became – you know, the mainstay uh, for the defense for the team for that first year. We developed really strongly, and and you can't help but play with someone like uh, Noel Price, you know, who just uh, brings so much experience, and he's such a gentleman, such a family man, so he brings so much to the table both on and off the ice. You know, and then there were others like Ronnie Harris, you know, that were just constantly, um, you know, uh, working on – on their weights and their strength and so you mm-hmm. there were just a lot to learn from in different ways from everybody so and i think on an early on a first year expansion team which you know according to the press in montreal i remember reading on them when we went in there for the first our first time was that we were the worst collection of professional hockey players <laughs> in the in the history of the national hockey league um you know, drew us all together pretty tightly, and uh, because we knew we didn't uh, have a you know all the great guns and all the great uh you know, best defenseman in the league. We had great goaltending, and we had a we had a coach that understood all of those things. And mm-hmm. Boomer was just great, and you know, he got us uh, quite a ways quite a ways through the season before you know we just realized we didn't have the depth to be able to hang in there when the good teams were really starting to pick it up. We didn't have another gear. You guys were respectable uh, because you had a solid defense, and as you mentioned, very strong in net with Dan Bouchard and Phil Mayer. Talk a little bit about that interesting dynamic because for your duration of the time that you were in Atlanta, um, you had the unique situation of having two uh, top-level goaltenders. And talk a little bit about that dynamic and what that meant to the franchise. Well, I think it was good for both Dan and Phil because they really, uh, they're really two different men uh, from every, every which way. Mm-hmm. Personalities, goaltending style I mean they were just unique to each other but uh, they both had an incredible desire uh, to win and to play they both wanted to be number one and so they pushed each other really really hard but for those of us in front of them we knew that whoever was in net we had a pretty good chance uh, if we played our part uh, to win the game or at Mm -hmm. least be competitive and get through to the end of the game where there was a chance to win the game Uh, you know Dan was a little more of a firebrand you know, he was uh, involved in, you know, uh, kind of upsetting things every once in a while, where mm-hmm. Phil was more of a, you know, kind of an encourager. So uh, just, like I said, just two two totally different uh, guys. But uh, I don't think any expansion team could have asked for anything more, uh, you know, with uh, the two uh, back of the two goaltenders that we had. Absolutely. Now, it's it's important for you guys to be competitive because you are playing in the Deep South for the first time and you need to get out of the gates quickly as far as fan support is concerned. But uh, how was the how was the fan support in year one? Fan support was awesome. They, uh, You're right. The people really knew very little about hockey. And at the time, you know, 1972, I think Atlanta had somewhere between four and 500,000 people. So it was a very small city that was on the rise, but still was a very small audience. So a lot of the folks from up north hadn't moved in yet. So it really was a, kind of a deep south culture. Uh, I think the league kind of set us up. They didn't. Maybe the league didn't believe we were going to be incredibly successful that year because we ended up playing four of our, I think it was four of our first five games on the road and maybe mm-hmm. ten of our first twelve. But I remember the first night we did come into the Omni. Uh, we were playing uh, Buffalo and they were still uh, bolting seats in. Wow. We went when we went out to the warm up, but. And looked up into the stands, you know, people were all dressed up. They had suits on, and the ladies <laughs> had their nicest coats on. And things. It was really 
you know, not that people in the rest of the league didn't dress well, but just seemed to be they. This was a special night out for the fans. You could tell, and I remember we got our first shot on net, and the crowd all cheered, and it was kind of like, okay, <laughs> you know, what is this all about? Uh, but you know, they got really excited. They loved the physical play because the folks in the South love football. They of all kinds, high school, you know, college, uh, pro ball, uh, and that became our biggest one of our biggest uh, problems in the South, especially in the first half of the, our hockey season, right. was the high school, you know, college uh, football that uh, drew so many thousands of people out of the city. Didn't leave much for us. But, um, no, we we got invited to more homes uh, for dinners, uh, more events, you know, for speaking. And and with a personality like Boomer, you <laughs> know, as, co- as coach, you know, he drew a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. you know to the team as well so it was a it was a fun city to live in and play in especially the first couple of years uh, it was really exciting you are selected to play in the 1973 nhl all-star game uh do you remember how you heard about uh that selection and what was your reaction uh well boomer told me and um you know i just you know boomer's a big kidder and so I thought he's, you know, he's just pulling my chain here big time because, you know, I was having a good season. The team was playing well, but I didn't know that I would be considered, uh, you know, for that honor. And so um, it was a it was a big surprise. And um, I just, you know, I guess in hindsight, I wish that I'd have had a second, you know, opportunity because I know I would have enjoyed it more than I did the first one because mm-hmm. I was so nervous. <laughs> Uh, where was where was the game that year? It was in New York. All oh, right, right. Uh, and so and, and so that was great. Uh, we were at the uh, all the you know pregame ceremonies and things were at the Waldorf Astoria, and uh, it was just a like once again, you know, the year before I'd been in Fort Worth, and uh, you know, just a couple of years before that I'd been in Hamilton, and so for me it was a long way from from Leamington by way of Hamilton mm-hmm. to Fort Worth, and all of a sudden I'm in New York playing you know, with the best players in the world at the time. And it was just an exciting night. I was the only rookie in the game that night, and so I was interviewed in between periods. Mm-hmm. My, mom, my mom and dad, uh, you know, got to see me uh, interviewed wow. you know, on top of play, playing in the game, you know. So so it was an exciting night uh, for not only for me, but for my family as well. Uh, Randy, I, the next year, uh, the Flames draft Tom Lysiak, uh, number one in the draft, obviously he becomes a, a big part of that Flames franchise, and of course Tom passed away a few years back. But I was curious, uh, looking back at Tom, uh, what your memories are of him as a player and a person. Tommy uh, was the guy that everybody loved. The fans loved him. The teammates, he was the kind of guy you could really call us around. Uh, even the opposition guys had to appreciate and uh, appreciate him because. He um, he had an ability, had a natural ability to play the game. That um, he he knew what he could do and what he couldn't do. He played it really well. He was tough when he needed to be. He didn't mind scrapping with anybody. Mm-hmm. He'd go into the corners for the puck, or he'd stand out front and take a beating. Uh, but at, at, when when the night was over, when the game was over, Tommy was ready to go out and party. <laughs> he was just a good good guy and. Um, he, but I guess the biggest challenge he had is that Billy uh, Tommy didn't want to be. He didn't want to have all that pressure of being the guy, mm-hmm. uh, and so that made it really hard because there was high expectations for Tommy. That everybody believed that he could be a 50 goal right. you know, scorer every year, and whether he could have or not, I don't know. He played well, but he was also very happy to be the second guy or the third guy. He didn't have to be number one. And I think he really played better when he wasn't mm-hmm. uh, that uh, expected to be that number one guy. But it was hard for him to ignore that or to avoid it because everybody looked to him for that. And Tommy was a super guy, just a super, super young man. Uh, I've talked a little bit about the change of hockey. Uh, the Flames are getting a little bit bigger in the, in the 1970s. Guys like Willie Plett and Eric Vale, uh, uh, Kenny Houston. So you're kind of matching the, 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 the increase in size around the league. And, of course, the Broad Street Bullies kind of shepherd that, ushered that era in in 73, 74. 
Hey, as a matter of fact, too, if you, on YouTube, the only YouTube clip of Randy Maneri is having a fight with Mike Corrigan, my good my good friend uh, with the Los Angeles Kings, and uh, you right. coming out on top of that. But, but I'm curious about the intimidation factor in hockey at that time. And you guys had a historic brawl with the Philadelphia Flyers, but the game changed a lot in a few short years. And I just want to get your thoughts on, on that environment at that time. The game changed really quickly. You're right. Um, and the league wasn't ready for it. You know, they didn't have all the necessary rules in place because nobody had really played like that before uh, with the, the intimidation, you know, the multiple you know, multiple guys in a fight um, concept of instead of the two toughest guys from two teams, you know, fighting, uh, all of a sudden it became kind of like, let's take the best guy out. You right. know? So in the, pa- in the past where you wouldn't bother uh, or Maurice Richard or Dickie Duff or whoever those little guys, the smaller players were, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was okay to take a run at a, you know, at a Marcel Dion or you know, some of the smaller, more talented, you know, guys and get them out of the game. And uh, that was just one of the many, many facets of the game uh, that changed. Uh, and in Atlanta, gosh, we built, uh, I should say, we Cliff and Boom and then Fred Creighton built a big team. I mean, you're right with, you know, with Pat and Willie and Kenny Houston and uh, Eric, um, you know, and then Kurt Bennett, you know, mm-hmm. there and then Butch, Butch Deadmarsh came in. And, you know, it was not, Hillary Graves was there for a while. It wasn't big, but what could really put a hurt on you with one of these checks. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had some great games because we, you could not intimidate us. But the thing was, is that we never, I always thought our challenge is that our team never went looking for it. Whereas Philadelphia would come out right, drop off, drop the puck right. and, and go after it. We waited to be uh, for somebody else to instigate against us. And so a lot of nights, their teams, uh, we should have beaten physically as well as score-wise but we never quite got to it because they left us alone. Right. Uh, Your big guys could could play. Exactly. Willie, I mean, Willie, score goals. Eric, score goals. Kenny Houston, score goals. They all could, and that's what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they obviously they weren't afraid to go in and, uh, you know, drop the gloves either, but, you know, everybody plays the game to, you know, to be able to, you know, to score, and that's the fun part of the game. The fighting part of the game is, uh, you know, is, uh, is a grind. And, uh, yes, you can get your own recognition that way as well. But I don't know of anybody who'd rather go and score 25, 30, 40, 50 goals and gain, gain their recognition that way rather than uh, you know, being the team enforcer or one of the enforcers. The Flames go on solid through the, the 70s, and you get traded to the Los Angeles Kings. I'm curious what your reaction was to be traded uh, out to the West Coast. Uh, well, initially, I was really disappointed and really upset uh, because the end of the se- end of the previous season, uh, I got married. And before we got married, before I got married, I went in to see Cliff, and I said, "Cliff, getting ready to get married. I'm looking at buying a home." Uh oh. I said, "I said now, just just tell me up front, uh, is this a wise thing for me to do, or you know, should I we just you know rent?" And he said, "No, Randy." He said go ahead and buy. He said, you're going to be here for a while. He said, you're one of the mainstays. It was very complimentary and very nice. And so <laughs> we went and bought, I went and bought a house. Of course. And, uh, yeah, uh, things changed. And so uh, disappointed, obviously. But then I thought, you know, L.A. has finished ahead of us, you know, the last two or three years, maybe every year that I was in Atlanta. And we always had a difficult time beating them. And so I thought, well, you know, it's never bad when a team above you reaches down and, and uh, you know, likes you enough to bring you in. Mm-hmm. And so I started to look at it from a different uh, standpoint. And going to L.A., uh, Ron Stewart was the coach the first year. Yeah. And he was a lot like uh, Boomer in that he was old school. Um, he just assumed that you knew how to play the game. And that was my responsibility to play the game and to get myself in shape. And his, you know, his responsibility was to, was to be the coach. And I always felt that Ron and uh, and Boom had that old school thing where, if, when the old six team, you know, kind of philosophy, you know, if you didn't want to play, you know, there were six guys playing one league below you that were right. almost as good as good as you anyway, maybe younger, and so if you couldn't do it, you know, fine, there's somebody else. It was no big deal, and I think that was some of their philosophy, not so much on, you know, the technical side of the game maybe, but more on the 
being the encourager, the guy that come along, give you the pat on the back, or uh, just try to get you going one way or the other. But both of them were gentlemen, and neither one of them uh, would uh, disparage you in the press. Mm-hmm. You know, they would pull you aside one on one, but never in public. And I re- really appreciated that. What was the atmosphere? I, I've talked to uh, a few players who played in L.A., and you're playing in the fabulous forum. Uh, you're in the middle of all of the Hollywood hoopla and a lot of distractions, potentially. Of course, you're, you're newly married, a little different uh, than being a single yeah. guy. But uh, what was the overall atmosphere like uh, playing for the L.A. Kings in the 70s? Well, you know, when I first went out there, it was, uh, it was really good because, you know, Rogi Vachon was the goaltender. And uh, with all, all due respect for Phil and Dan, Rogi was by far the best best goaltender I ever played in front of, mm-hmm. and he was a he was a a good man as well. Everybody really loved uh, Rogi, and then Butch Goring was there, and Marcel was there, and you know we had a really uh, had a very competitive team. Uh, the crowds were good. Um, you know. The big thing about Los Angeles is that there's so many. You're right. There are so many distractions. You can get, you can go to the beach. You can go to Hollywood. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh, but I think the team in general was pretty good about keeping everybody in line. Um, hockey didn't have the same uh, draw for the big, you know, for the big name actors, actresses, whoever you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That say basket. That say basketball did. But we still uh, had our opportunities to get out into. Uh, you know, get around the community. Had a lot of fun that way. Uh, but quite honestly, playing in L.A. came with a price, and the price at the time was the road trips. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, the league was not set up. Uh, everybody played equal number of games against every team. And so being on the West Coast, other than Vancouver at the time, that was the only other uh, same time zone team that we played against. Then you had to come to Kansas City, I think, for maybe a year or so, but then it was Chicago and St. Louis, and then you know, the big swings through the east. They were really grueling, really long trips that were, as I learned after moving after going there to play, they were just patently unfair. Absolutely. <laughs> for the league. So. It was, uh, boy, I tell you, when I had talked to my Corey, he reminded me of the year they played the Bruins in the first round, and they, it yep. was 2-2, 1-1-1 at a seven-game series. So it was back east coast, west coast, east coast, west coast, and it was brutal. But, you know, you look at the, research that's been done, you know, even for myself personally, you know, if I had to make a flight to the West Coast and then to the East Coast or whatever, it, you know, like everybody else, it takes a while to adjust. Never mind stepping out on the ice with a team that's waiting for you in the Boston Garden uh, with, with a day's rest or whatever. Yeah, as you said, it was very, uh, very unfair. But it, the one thing about the league now is because it's a lot more geographically uh uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Geographically um, uh, favorable to teams in the West right. Coast. So, right, that's good because I remember we used to do the one trip I always hated from LA was that we would uh, fly into we'd do Philadelphia on Thursday, Montreal on Saturday, and Boston oh. you know on Sunday, and you'd go really you know <laughs> because <laughs> there was not a sleeper in there at all. You had to come in uh, with your A game, or you're going to get you know, physically beat or skated it, skated into the ice and then go into Boston and maybe get both done to you, you know. Right. So you had to be ready to get up and go. And uh, so that was the kind of thing that made the, made the L.A. Uh, situation, you know, just really a little more difficult than some of the other teams had. Randy, who uh, you played against the best of the best and some of the all-time greatest. Who was the best player you ever played against? Well, I, I th- Bobby Orr for sure. Um, uh, Gretzky was just coming in, you know, to just kind of getting into his zone when I uh, left the game uh, after that 1980 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I played with, I was blessed to be able to play with, uh, you know, Gordie Howe and Alex and all those early on, and again, Stan Makita and, and Bobby Hall and, and that group, and then come along through the, you know, through the, um, uh, through the Orr, you know, the Orrs and the Espositos mm-hmm. and, uh, all the great guys, you know, were in Montreal. Um, just so many good. You know, Brad Park was playing back then. Cornway was still playing. Keon and all those guys. So, and then uh, then at the end, you know, the new group were coming through. You know, the, the Gretzky and, and his group were coming right. in. So, so, you know, re- really blessed to kind of be able to play with almost three eras of of all stars, uh, Hall of Famers, 
just a just a really special time. The uh, Randy, an interesting thing happens too is that uh, your brother Chris uh, ends up playing in the National Hockey League, and I'm assuming at some point you played against him. I did. Yeah. And, he was in Cleveland. Right. So that has to be a great experience for your your, your family and yourself. Uh, do you remember that first time that you two would have opposed each other on the ice? I do, uh, because it was it was a fun night. Because you're right. First of all, you're playing against your brother, and uh, that's always that's always fun. Uh, but then Cleveland isn't that far from our hometown in, uh, in southern Ontario, and so a lot of a lot of a lot of our friends and some family members and things made the drive around to uh, Cleveland uh, for the game, and so it was just uh, it was kind of like a little bit of a homecoming. It was it was fun to play against my brother. Um, it was just it was just a good night. I don't remember if we won or not, but um, I just remember it being you know being a good night. And uh, Chris had had a great career uh, at the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, you know came out and just never quite uh, you know got the opportunity to showcase all of his uh, his gifts his talents um, but he had a really good career time in the NHL and then went to Europe to play and so he got a lot of a lot of hockey uh, under his belt and uh, has a lot to um, a lot to be proud of and what he was able to accomplish so absolutely and for your family having two brothers in the National Hockey League very very rare indeed I just wanted to ask one last question about the LA experience Actually, I had two quick ones. Number one, uh, who were you primarily paired with on defense back then? I remember reading at some point it was Dave Hutchinson, um, slightly different style than yours, of course. But uh, who, um, who, if anyone, did you pair with the most uh, over that three-year stretch? Uh, well, I did start out with Dave, and Dave was much more like Pat Quinn. You know, um, and Pat and I had played together for five years, uh, roomed together for five years. We were mm-hmm. our families were really close. And then going to LA, um, you know, Dave was uh, that same kind of tough, aggressive, you know, guy. And then uh, played a little bit with uh, Larry Brown. Uh, and then uh, I think things just well, they started to uh, bring in some different you know, younger players and things. So uh, I played with uh, uh, Wells. Uh, Jay Wells, mm-hmm. uh, the one season, his, his first season, I played a lot with Jay. Uh, so there was a little more of a rotation around. I, I don't remember playing with any one guy all that, you know, like I did, like I had with Pat uh, in Atlanta. The one more guy I wanted to mention to you, you had mentioned earlier, but uh, in your last two seasons with LA, you start to see the formation of the Triple Crown line where Charlie Simmer kind of comes out of nowhere to uh, kind of complement that unit. But, of course, making it all go at center is Hall of Famer Marcel Dion. What are uh, your recollections of, of Marcel uh, on and off the ice? Um, Marcel was a very uh, gifted, really worked hard, but a very gifted, very compact you know, center, really strong skater, physically strong upper body. He just happened to be on a team that was, at that particular time, you know, with Philadelphia coming into the league, uh, coming changing the style of their play, that uh, L.A. was never that grinding team. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Marcel took a fair amount of punishment uh, on the ice, as did uh, Butch Goring. And uh, the smaller, you know, centers, because uh, we weren't that kind of team that was going to be able to go after, you know, the game after game, go after the other guys on the other team. And so it made it difficult for them, but they played incredibly well and uh, certainly were, you know, among the best players, you know, on our team. Uh, Marcel off the ice, uh, you know, was an interesting guy as well. He loved uh, he loved to play. He loved hockey, but he also enjoyed, uh, you know, being with the guys off the, uh, off the ice. And uh, all in all, you know, things, uh, he was a pretty good guy. Uh, once again, I was... You know, I was probably one of the more conservative guys, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the group. And uh, uh, but, you know, say Marcel was uh, had a great family and really really enjoyed playing hockey and, and really really enjoyed being a leader on the team. So mm-hmm. it was good. Randy, I've read a couple accounts of the end of your career, which was rather abrupt. One said you had an eye injury, and the other said you had a blood disorder. How did things uh, end for you in Los Angeles? They didn't end well, I'm very honest with you, but <laughs> but that's the way it happens a lot in hockey um, or in any sport as far as that goes. But um, 
uh, my first two years in LA were really good. I mean, I played really well. Um, you know, won some individual team awards. I mean, things were really well. Now, in the summer leading up to my third season, I thought, you know, I'm just going to tweak my training program, my off-season training program a little bit so I can, you know, even have a better year this third year. Um, and I tweaked it too much, and I ended up hitting training camp. Uh, I did a, I really picked up my running in the off-season, that third season, off-season. And um, I found out that my, my body wasn't built uh, for running. And by the time I got to training camp, instead of, building myself up but actually tore myself down and mm -hmm. I developed a, a blood disorder and so um, I went to training camp I had no strength I just felt like I'd done nothing you know all year all summer long um, and so I missed the first I missed quite a few games quite a few weeks right off the bat and then I came back and I was quite a bit behind uh, when it came to you know game game conditioning and getting my game up and then um it was after the new year we were at practice uh, one day and just warming up you know you shoot pucks at the goalie and mm -hmm. they bounce off and the goalie you know hits them this way or that way where they stick well it just so happened somebody shot one and it bounced off of the goaltender's uh, glove and the goalie just took his stick and just like he knocked it to the corner like he would any other time yeah the t timing was such as i came through just as he swung the stick yeah. and his stick stick took me in my left eye and uh ended up getting about 40 stitches in the inside corner of my left eye. And oh, scary. I ended up, yeah, very, and I ended up missing the rest of the season, and uh, when I came back that next fall, uh, there was no, um, they had made some trades in the off season and they made some moves, and there was no real place for me on the roster, and so uh, uh, that's the way it kind of ended for me. Right. What's it like, uh, 1980, and for the first time you're not going out on the ice and playing a National Hockey League schedule. Obviously, you have your education in your back pocket, but this still had to be uh, quite an adjustment for you uh, in the early stages. It was scary. Uh, I remember my wife and I were sitting on the on our front porch in Los Angeles, and you know, I just found out what was going on, so she and I were talking about it. And, you know, I said to her, I said, "Hun, I said, we can... Uh, I said, we can uh, go to Florida. That's where my wife had been raised in Florida, but I met her in Atlanta. I said, we can go back to Florida. I said, we can go home to uh, my hometown in Canada. We can go to Leamington, or we can go back to Atlanta. I said, it really doesn't make any difference because wherever we go, we're starting over. Mm -hmm. So um, we talked about it for a while, and we decided to go back to Atlanta because that's where we'd had both of us that had our best you know, single experience, and that's also where we'd... Uh, really knew more people and we felt both felt like that would make a better home you know for us and so we mm -hmm. headed back uh, for Atlanta and uh, started looking for a job and that became an interesting experience as well so <laughs> well at the time you know I, I think about this being in your position where your identity you, you've done something very very special you've been at the peak of your profession in the National Hockey League and you're uh, doing your work with immediate feedback with 15,000 customers and um, just the I did just overall identity of you know being Randy Maneri NHL hockey player and now that is not the case and I'm just curious of your, your mindset as now your, your, your wife and you are, are, are back in Atlanta. And what's, the, what's your next step? What got you going and uh, what had you had decided to do at that point? Well, we went back to Atlanta and um, I thought that I, I still believed that I could play. I, I had just, uh, I had really felt that I had another three or four years that I could play uh, in the NHL. Absolutely. So. So I thought, let's try to go to Europe. And um, so that just never worked out for me. Uh, for some reason, whatever the, whatever, whatever the reasons might have been, I was never able to catch on with the team. And uh, I guess so that would be getting near, I was getting near the end of uh, being one year uh, out of hockey. And, you know, we didn't make a lot of money, and so it wasn't like I had millions to sit on. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had to get a job. Something had to happen. And so um, I was interviewing. Everybody wanted that I interviewed with wanted me to go into sales. I didn't want to go into sales. I did not want to sit in front of people and ask them to buy, you know, beer or laptop, not laptops right. at the time, but uh, insurance or whatever it may be. And I wasn't interested in that. 
but the common everybody I met with said the same thing other than that we realize you have a college education but you have no business experience you're 30 years old um, sales is the thing that we have for you and so we ended up buying a business we bought a dry cleaning store oh really uh, so we bought one and then we so then we added to that we started managing some and we bought uh, one and then we then we bought a Baskin Robbins ice cream store and then I bought a light construction company and there's no comparison between now looking back now I just go my goodness Randy how could you possibly have made all three of those <laughs> things work because there's no commonality uh, in any of them um, but we did that for 11 years and it was probably the most difficult 11 years uh, of my life uh, just a real struggle um, uh, understanding business understanding people understanding employees mm -hmm. uh, understanding or trying to get used to the demands of, of customers um, unrealistic at times I would think and also uh, found that it was uh, it took a lot of work to uh, make some profit and to be able to get a paycheck for yourself every two weeks as well so sure. uh, but it was a real life uh, lesson and I was very blessed quite honestly looking back on it you know I was given well 11 11 years of professional hockey plus the three in Hamilton and then I was given 11 years of you know of experience uh, in quote the real world um, mm -hmm. you know with, with small business and when we sold the businesses, um, I kind of thought, you know, we haven't been very successful at this. I mean, we didn't lose any money, but we didn't leave with big bank accounts either. But in hindsight, I found out that something like 60% uh, or something of first-year businesses all fail within, within the first three years, I think it is. And then of those that go beyond three to four years, maybe at five, six, seven years, another 15% of those fail. Yeah, I was gonna, actually, I was going to quote stats like that to you as you were, you were talking about the various businesses that you had in different industries. That is, uh, to keep that going for 11 years and, uh, you know, pay people and, like you said, deal with customers, the economy, everything that can be thrown your way. It is a great lesson for, for, for yourself. And that is, like you said, the, kind of like the school of hard knocks. You learn everything uh, when you're running a business. You're on the front lines, you're in the back office, you're marketing sales, uh, customer service, everything under the sun. So by the time you're done with that, it's almost like uh, another education in and of itself for 11 years. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of things in life, you know, for me, nothing's been really nothing's been really easy or I've made it difficult for myself too. Mm -hmm. you know? so uh, but that was just another chapter and another but another very uh, beneficial one as I would find you know when I finally got out of business right now Randy uh, you take your career in another direction in the nonprofit world and now with Cure International you're helping uh, do some very very special things out there could you talk to us a little bit about that yeah, so in, uh, in 1990, um, uh, like probably several, of the, I, would, I know like with Dan Bouchard and several others, you know, probably post-hockey, you know, we played with Eddie Kia, who had a really strong faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was raised in the church, it's just that during the hockey years, it's pretty tough to stay, at least back then it was pretty tough to stay, you know, in church all the time with the schedule and the travel and everything. Right. But after I got out, uh, my faith became very important to me. Uh, and... In 1990, I was given an opportunity to, you know, more or less get into sales. The thing that I hated, the, thought I would hate the most, but it was, in this case, it was in fundraising and mm -hmm. what we call de development. And so for the last almost 30 years, I've been in development working with, uh, I worked 18 of those years with a, a group, uh, actually 20 of those years, with a group called Haggai Institute, and then did some work with a ministry out of Egypt called Stephen's Children. And then the last 10 years, I've been working with a group called Cure International, and um, the last 10 years have really been exciting for me. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the uh, work that Cure International is doing? I will. Um, so for me, I always kind of believed that after I got a hockey, several years after I'd been out of hockey, I really felt that somewhere along the line that I was going to be given an opportunity to pay back, to give back, because so many parents, men, coaches, professionals had invested in me in, over my hockey career. Mm -hmm. And I really felt that 
it was only fair that something would be expected of me, uh, you know, to kind of pay back. And so uh, Cure International is the leading provider of pediatric orthopedic reconstructive surgery uh, for kids uh, in the developing world. We have uh, eight hospitals. We have programs in another 15, 16 countries. We do about 15, 16,000 surgeries a year, plus I don't know how many clinic uh, calls, uh, probably closer to 100,000 clinic calls we do every year. And when I joined Cure, uh, my responsibility was to be the international, to lead the international fundraising uh, at Cure. which meant I still did work in the United States, but mm-hmm. I was uh, given an opportunity to develop our office and uh, our brand in Canada. And I spent a lot of time in the Philippines where we built the uh, Tebow Cure Hospital. And I've just been around, I've just been traveling the world a lot, meeting a lot of great people, uh, raising funds uh, to help uh, kids uh, be able to get up, walk, run, play, and go to school, get married, you know, lead productive lives. Some of the things that you, me, millions of others who live in Canada, United States, just you know, almost take for granted. We mm-hmm. don't realize what a blessing it has been for us. And so this has been exciting for me to be able to give back. That's good. We can, uh, you know, when you have that type of passion and your life is focused on meaningful and rewarding work, it's a great way to live. And I greatly appreciate the time you spent with us today. Very motivational. And I love what you're doing now, and I, I really enjoyed uh, hearing some insights about uh, an excellent career that you had. And I, again, Randy, thanks so much for your time today, and we hope to, uh, to stay in touch. And good luck with your continued work with uh, your family and Cure International. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been fun. Like I say, living in the South, I don't get these many opportunities <laughs> anymore. So this has, been, this has been a special time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Randy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at ProHockeyAlumni.org.